Um, we're going to be starting, and I don't know if this is going to work. Oh, it is. Woo. We're going to be starting, not starting. Uh, Patrick kind of kicked off for us a little bit of this series that we're going to be going through. And it's called Road and Rubber. Road plus rubber. And uh, that's just a funny way to say how the rubber meets the road. Like, we know that phrase, right? And what, is it, what does it mean when somebody tells you, uh, well, the rubber met the road? Okay, yeah, the road trip. We've already done the road trip. That was joining the journey. Now we're moving on to a different idea. Yeah, when the rubber meets the road, you got traction, okay? What about when you tell a teenager, when the rubber meets the road, maybe I'm the only one who uses this phrase. It's a good thing I'm explaining it because I might have lost you guys in the beginning. What's up? Like you get your driver's license? Okay, the... the, the the friction, kind of, the idea is like, have you ever had somebody who has really, 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 really good ideas and has a lot of really, really, really good ideas, but they're the kind of person that will spend all day telling you all about all their great ideas, and you look at them and go, why don't you go do something? That's where the rubber meets the road, is when we take the ideas of what we know and actually put them into practice, right? This is why what we value as a church is, is God's wisdom, God's divine wisdom, because we can study the Bible forever and ever and ever and ever and never do anything with it. But wisdom is knowledge applied. Do you understand what I'm saying here? So what we're looking at here is where the rubber meets the road, because I'm going to give you a, a proposition that I think you're going to agree with. Prayer works. Amen? All right, we got an amen. Okay, good. Let me try one more time. Prayer works. Yeah, okay, good. So prayer works, but prayer sometimes feels like it doesn't fit into my life. Amen. Okay, thank you, Gary. We're on, page, on the same page. <clears throat> sometimes it feels like there's stuff going on, and I'm just like, God, I don't even know what to say to you. I don't even know how to talk to you. I don't even know. I, I can't even tell what's going on to be able to explain it to you realistically, much less know how to ask for help with this. So even though I know and would agree, because I'm a good Christian, I showed up to church on a Sunday morning, I know that prayer works. When the rubber meets the road, I'm not so sure. And so I want to do something that's a little bit different, it's a little bit experimental, but you guys are bright and, and you'll be able to follow me with this. I want to take a look at the book of Esther. And, and the, the book of Esther is a story that shows up in the Hebrew scriptures in the Old Testament, and it, and it gives a snapshot of something that's happening when Israel, the nation of Israel, is put into timeout. So, so God makes this nation and rises them up and says, you guys follow me. And they're like, yeah, we got this. And then immediately walk the other direction. And so God says, look, you guys are going to go into timeout. So the, the nation of Israel has been carried away to a foreign land and they were carried away by the Babylonians, but this is real life. So the Babylonians got taken over by the Persians and the Jews, the Israelites are still there. And so this, this story of Esther is a snapshot of things that are happening when Israel is in timeout. But I want to look at that story, 
Not to look at that story, because I think that story is really interesting, but I want to look at that story to show you a framework of how real life plays out sometimes. Because one of the things that I find interesting about the book of Esther is that God doesn't show up at all in it. Uh, Patrick mentioned last week that this, in this book, you will not find the name of God or a mention of God. You will not even find prayer in the book. So I want to use that book as a way to show you how to pray. Does that make perfect sense to you? <laughs> no, it doesn't. <clears throat> because here's what I know. Of the influences that you have in your life, there are none of them that are telling you to pray. There, there are no good influences in our culture that are pointing you towards Jesus. There are many who will claim a spirituality that will point you towards yourself and say, you have everything you need within you and just access that. And yet, that's not how the Bible tends to word things. Your life will oftentimes look a lot more like Esther, where you'll be going through something and you'll be like, God, where are you? Where are you? Can't you see what's happening? Aren't you in control? And it seems like maybe God's not even on the scene. But when you get a little bit of perspective and you get away from that and you can look back on what happened, you go, oh, that's what God was doing. That's the book of Esther. So then how do we use a book that doesn't talk about prayer or mention God to teach us how to pray? We use a different book. We have this book in the, in the middle of your Bible, and it's uh, the largest selection, the most chapters. It's called the book of Psalms. And it's a book of songs that have been compiled. It's essentially the original hymnal, but I don't really want to say hymnal because some of you will be like, I don't want to read that. <clears throat> and some of you will be like, oh, that's awesome. I didn't realize I was in there. Anyway, so these songs, sometimes when you read them, are like, what does this have to do with real life? So we've got here all the real life and none of the God. And sometimes in the songs, we've got all of the God and none of the real life. And so what I'd like to do, if we can, because this is taking a lot longer to explain than I thought it was going to, is bring the two together. All right? So if you're going to be going through this with us, we've got a Bible reading guide. And the Bible reading guide is going to focus on the book of Esther because I'm not. I'm going to use that as a jumping off point to talk about the book of Psalms. But I am going to try and summarize with you a little bit of what happens in the book of Esther so that we know what we're talking, we know the real life we're talking about so that we, when we get to the God stuff, it makes sense. We understand? See, I've, it seems like you guys are tracking with me. It's awesome. All right, great. Let's pray. <laughs> God, thanks so much for this morning, Lord. Thank you for the ways that you work. And Lord, thank you for the diversity that we find in your word. It's astonishing that we could look at a book in your word that doesn't mention you at all. And Lord, at the end of it, you still manage to take all the glory for yourself. God, we pray that you would uh, continue to meet with us here together, God, that as we speak and as we study your word, that uh, you would clarify the things that we haven't understood yet. And God, we pray that you would do the work of changing our hearts. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Dirty, filthy, stinking, rich. Not just coincidentally rich. Not just right time, right place kind of rich. Old money, rich, dirty, filthy, stinking, rich. 
Not just that they know me and who I am and the money that I've got, but they knew my dad. And my dad had old money, so you know that's really old. Dirty, filthy, stinking, rich. And if people ever forget who you are, don't hesitate to remind them. See, King Xerxes or King Ahasuerus, his dad's name was Darius. And he was ruler of the Persian Empire and it stretched far and wide. And he had his sights set on these Athenians. And he said, I'm going to go and teach those Athenians a lesson. So he went and these Athenians who had a lesser army but knew the land better, kicked him out and sent him home. And so Darius has a problem. He's got this state that rebelled that actually kicked him out. He's got that's a little bit uncomfortable to deal with. But the Egyptians, a different state, look at Darius and go, well, you can't handle the Athenians. You can't handle us. And so they rebel too. And so Darius goes out to squash the Egyptians and never comes home. And so Xerxes or Ahasuerus inherits the king, inherits the throne, and he inherits a problem, doesn't he? Because he's dirty, filthy, stinking, rich. But when people forget that, he needs to not hesitate to remind them. So he inherits the kingdom and he says, I need to remind people who we are. I need to remind people why we are in charge. And so he puts his wealth on display. He invites rich and poor alike to come to his palace in the capital city and to see the glory that is King Ahasuerus. And so they come in and they see that his palace is constructed with fine marble and not any expense has been spared. And not only that, but he's decorated it with pure white linens. And the pure white linens weren't enough, so he dyed them with the wealthiest, uh, the wealthiest dye he could find, which was purple. He dyed all those, and everybody got to come in and see these white and purple linens that are hanging to decorate his marble palace. And rich and old alike are like, man, you got a lot of money. And this went on for... For six months. And he invites his naval officers. He invites his army officers. He invites the commanders and the, and the leaders and governors of the provinces to come. And I need you to see just how wealthy I am. Don't forget why I'm in charge. And so at the end of six months, he says, hey, let's, let's throw a party. Like, this isn't enough. You, you haven't seen me spend money. Let me show you how I spend money. We're going to eat and we're going to drink out of golden uh, cups and off of golden plates. And there's going to be two rules, all right? Two rules for this party. The first rule is do whatever you want. <laughs> Sounds like a good deal, right? Whatever seems right to you, you can go ahead and do it. Like, this is going to be the wildest party you've ever seen. And the second rule is like it, always be drinking. Don't ever stop. The wine is going to flow without end. All of us are going to be completely and totally wasted. We're going for seven days. We're going strong. Because I am dirty, filthy, stinking, rich, and when people forget it, I cannot hesitate to remind them. So, the king throws his party. And the queen, likewise, she does what seems right to her. She throws a separate little party with the same rules. Do whatever you want and always be drinking. And so the king gets to a certain point in his party where he's like, guys, 
you don't believe how smoking hot my wife is. And they're all drunk, and they're like, yeah, bring her out here. Let's see how smoking hot your wife is. And so he calls his wife, the queen, and says, hey, you're smoking hot. Come here and let us look at you, because we're all drunk. And she says, no, because she's got some sense. But anyway. And the king now has another rebellion to deal with, right? He's seen two of them, right? And now not only is it happening in the provinces far away, but it's happening in his own home, under his own roof. And how dare she? So he and all of his drunk buddies get together and they start to decide, like, what are we going to do with this problem? He called her to come to the party and she said, no. The queen can't say no to the king. That's how the rules work. What are we going to do? And all of his drunken friends blow everything out of proportion because you have the greatest insight when you're absolutely wasted. They say, if you don't put your foot down, then every woman in the kingdom is going to rebel against her husband. We're going to have a mutiny and it's all going to fall apart. If you don't do something today, it's going to happen. And the king is like, yes, I'm going to get that tattoo. It is always great to make permanent decisions when you're drunk. The laws of the Persians worked this way, that if the king made a law and he signed it with a signet ring, it could not be changed. Even if the king changed his mind later, it could not be revoked. Once it's written down and stamped with that seal, that's what it is forever. And he thought, I'm going to get that tattoo. Kick her out. And he kicks his wife out of the throne, removes her from service. Dirty, filthy, stinking, rich. And when people forget who you are, don't hesitate to remind them. That's Esther chapter 1. Do you feel ever frustrated that the rich people get to run things? Like people, people who don't even remember what it's like to work 40 hours in a week are the ones who got to tell you where to pay your taxes. Does that get frustrating to you? That the world is set up, it seems like the world is set up to, to help the people who are already wealthy get more wealth and to help and to take us who don't maybe have nearly as much, but to take what we do have away from us. I'm just trying to put bread on the table and feed my kids. And the people in authority aren't maybe the people we would prefer to have. And maybe you're not to the place where you think about it on a governmental level, but all of us have problems with people who have been put into authority. We've all had parents before. We've all had teachers that we just can't. They don't even know, how, they don't even know what they're asking me to do. What do you mean i got to do all this homework? I got, I got, it's just piled up. i got so many other things, don't you know? And we get frustrated that the people in authority are the people who have to ask us to do something. And where is God in that? I'd invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 2. It's on page 560 if you'd like to use one of these blue Bibles, and you can uh, read these from space. They're super large print, so that'll be helpful to you if you have trouble seeing. Um, Psalm chapter 2 on page 560 in the blue Bibles. 
Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. As this psalm is opening up, it paints a picture of the world that that the people who are leading the world are the people who've set themselves in rebellion against God. And it might seem like, why would God let that to happen? But that's actually the story of each of us. That every single one of us since Adam in the garden has said, no, God, I can do a better job than you. I can rule my life better than you. I know more than you. The kings are just the ones that actually say it. The rest of us have a little bit more humility and try to pretend like it's not true of us. But the kings just say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords away from us. Let me take the things that God has put on me as restraints to keep me safe. Let me break those things off. I don't need that curfew. I don't need those limits. Let us break those things and throw them away. Let's conspire together to figure out a way to do what we want because that's what we want to do. Does this sound familiar to you? Are you guys, does this ring true? Okay. Because let this ring true too. Look with me at verse four. He who sits in the heavens laughs. With all of the craziness that you see on the news and all the division that you feel when you're watching those kinds of things, with, with all of the craziness as you try to think about the international political situation and what the heck is going to happen, I want you to understand the Lord who sits in the heavens laughs. He looks at all the, the planning and the musings of men and says, <laughs> you think it's going to work? Oh, yeah. Ooh, me. All right. Yeah, okay, let's do this. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So, if we were reading this as the people who heard it originally, we would think, oh, David. Because the people who were reading this psalm originally were Israelites, and the greatest king that they had appointed for them was David. And they're like, oh, David, he's going to be on the throne forever. I love that guy. But who do we know comes from the line of David to reign on the throne forever? Yeah! Who do we know that comes from the line of David that's going to reign on the throne forever? Who do we know from the line of David who's going to reign on the throne forever? Jesus. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I have a plan, and I'm working it out, and none of the conspiracies that you can put up are going to go against me. I've set my king up. And the voice of the king speaks in verse 7. I will tell of the decree. The Lord, Yahweh, said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. 
You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Judgment, rule, authority. When we think of Jesus, we typically think of a nice shepherd, uh, a little bit better beard than me, and longer hair for sure. And he's got, a, he's got a staff, right? And he's hanging out with sheep. I don't know why he's always hanging out with sheep. He's always hanging out with sheep or stupid apostles. <clears throat> Referencing Peter, who can't keep his mouth shut. Bad joke, sorry. <clears throat> he's always hanging out with sheep, right? And we think like, oh, that's such a nice picture. Like, it just makes me feel nice to see that guy petting the lambs. But maybe sometimes we don't think about the fact that occasionally, if a sheep got out of line, the role of the shepherd was to break their legs. Because if the sheep keeps wandering off over and over again, and the guy's job is to keep the sheep together, he's got to go to the sheep that keeps wandering off and break his legs and carry it with him until the sheep learns that you stay with the shepherd or things don't go well. And so the shepherd of nations is handed a rod of iron. Because when you rebel against the shepherd, you need something to teach you that when you leave him, things go badly. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Anybody ever dropped a clay pot? Just me. Like, for real? Okay, all right. How do those handle the impact there? just kind of explode, right? Something that I think is really funny, um, we talk to archaeologists, and archaeologists' job is to dig in the dirt and find stuff. And what's fascinating to me is that in all of their digging and digging and digging, do you know the thing they find the most? Clay pots and handles of clay pots. Because you had the handle, it broke off, the pot's gone. <laughs> <clears throat> So the picture isn't like one of, like when the kings and the nations of the earth, when they, when they gather together in their war room and they're making the plans of how things are supposed to work together, you like, it feels imposing. It feels doom. It feels like there's nothing who can stand in the way of these guys. They're, they're, they're powerful and they're dirty, filthy, stinking rich. And what could anything ever come against them? And yet, Jesus shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like what? clay pot. So what? Verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. And blessed are all who take refuge in him. Nothing in the world escapes God's sight. You see that? All of the injustice and all of the brokenness, all of the systems that keep people enslaved are not outside of God's understanding. You see that here. So where the rubber meets the road is that the king see or the king of heaven sees the king of Persia and laughs. 
The king in heaven didn't forget who the king of Persia was, but the king of Persia is still out trying to prove him. Don't let people forget who I am. And the king in heaven laughs. And so when we come face to face with with governments that are not working the way that we think they ought to, when we come face to face with authority systems or bosses or parents or teachers or principals that don't seem like they're going the way they want to, I just want you to know nothing in the world, nothing in the world, nothing in the world escapes God's sight. And the advice that God gives is to be wise and be warned. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge where? There's something that I'd like to point out because we talked with the students, we talked with Kid Nation about Psalm 1 which is a little bit nicer psalm, would you say? And Psalm 2, which is a little bit heavier psalm. What I'd like for you to think with me just for a minute, and we'll get back to the good stuff, but think with me for a minute because the structure is going to help you understand. Somebody came along and compiled the book of Psalms. Somebody put them in order. There's actually five books within the one book of Psalms. And somebody made the decisions about how those things go. And somebody made the decision to put Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 right next to each other. And somebody made the decision to put Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 right at the beginning. So what I'd like for you to do is think about Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 as the double doors to the book of Psalms. They actually go together. Look at Psalm 1. Just turn over a page real quick. Blessed is the man... Right? Look at Psalm 2, verse 12 at the end. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. They're bookends. The two go together. They're double doors to the book of Psalms. And what I want you to understand, because Psalm 1 is so focused on the individual life, and Psalm 1 is so focused on what do I do with my morning? And Psalm 1 is so focused on like, what do I do when I'm trying to choose friends? And it addresses those topics. And those are the ones that we really like to like deal with. And those are the ones that we feel like are encouraging to us and the things that edify us. And Psalm 2 is just a bunch of God stuff. And it doesn't feel like it's connected to the real life. It doesn't feel like it's connected to the real life. None of us in here are making decisions for nations. So why do we care so much? But I want you to see that what the book of Psalms does is it zooms in and out through those double doors. What do I do today, and what is God doing on the national, international, universal scene? It's zooming in and out, in and out, in and out. Because sometimes you'll come to Psalms and you'll be like, this just nourishes my soul. And sometimes you'll go to the Psalms and be like, why would you sing that? That doesn't make any sense. And so I want you to understand that's, by, that's on purpose. Because here's what... Here's what we forget. When we rebelled against God, we learned a wrong way to talk to him. God will meet us where we are, and in his grace and kindness, he will continue to do that. But he meets us where we are to train us so that we can interact with him in, a, in, in the way that he wants for us to do. You might think about it like this. 
a family is kind of established. We'll, we'll use my family. So my family, we've got six kids. We've got a method of how we do things. If we didn't have a method, like I would have even less hair, <clears throat> and my wife might just have murdered me by now. But we have a method of how we do things, right? And a couple of features of that are we eat dinner together almost every night, and we try to make that a priority. And we also have a very specific bedtime ritual, which involves the children fetching their um, toothpaste and toothbrushes, and, and we brush teeth in the living room, which I know is astonishing to some of you, but that's, that's how we do it. They don't drool. <laughs> they don't drool on the living room carpet. It's part of our training, I know. It's weird. <laughs> I didn't know it was weird until we had people over, but now I know it's weird. <clears throat> so that's our, those are, that's our ritual. Imagine with me. Imagine with me. We adopted a child. Uh, we'll say four, five, five, six. Somebody who's old enough to do those things. Day one. What, what does the routine look like? It's weird. I don't know how to do that. I've never brushed my own teeth. They always just did that for me. Like, I don't understand. What, how do I hold this thing? Where, where does it go? Why is everybody doing it and the adults don't have to tell them what to do? They just said, let's get ready. And now everybody knows what to do. And I don't know what to do. Like, how do I do this? I don't understand. Like, and I don't even like brushing my teeth. Maybe I don't want to brush my teeth right now. Maybe I want to stay up for another six or seven hours because I'm kind of stressed out right now. It's my first day in a new family. I don't know how this really works. When God brings us and he meets us where we are, we're coming into his system of how things work. He makes us citizens of heaven, but it takes some training to get to the point where we act like citizens of heaven. So when we come to the Psalms and go, why would you ever sing that? If you ask yourself that question, go, I need to know. Why would I sing this? God, there's something that you've put in here. There's some kind of model for having a conversation with you that I don't quite understand yet. And so would you show me? This is a framework for how we have our conversations with God. So how does Psalm 2 address the real life of Esther chapter 1? When the rubber meets the road. The king's acting a fool. He's sowing seeds of destruction he doesn't even know. And everybody in there, like their tax dollars paid for all that wine. Hard-working laborers paid money to fund the king's drunken power trip. Don't miss that. And yet God is working a plan on a scale that's beyond any one of our comprehension. So in the times where we come to injustice, I'd like for you to understand not only that nothing in the world escapes God's sight, but that we take refuge in Jesus because nothing in the world escapes God's sight. We take refuge in Jesus because nothing in the world escapes God's sight. Read this with me one more time, Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. 
He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in the pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Would you pray with me? Jesus, in your first coming, you came gently. You came as a teacher. You came as a sacrifice. And when we fixate our eyes on a baby in a manger or a criminal on a cross, we forget that you're the Lord of heaven, that you will come in judgment. So Jesus, would you remind us of that? And Lord, would you help us to wrap our minds around the grace you have shown to us that we need not fear you from the outside that you might destroy us, but Lord, you invite us into your family and we take refuge in you. Jesus, would you whisper to our hearts this morning in your name that we pray. Amen.